2: Hello and
0: welcome to this podcast from Neuropsychopharmacology. I'm Kerry Smith and in this show I'll be rounding up the highlights of this year's NPP reviews on the subject of cognition. The word cognition encompasses everything from learning and memory to language and decision making. It is perhaps the ultimate brain function, at least that's how cognitive neuroscientist Trevor Robbins describes it. He's the editor of this year's NPP reviews volume and I've come to his lab at Cambridge to talk about the highlights of the volume. Hi Trevor. Hi, Kerry. Now, first off, uh, is there anything you need to add to my definition of cognition there?
2: i put it slightly differently. What I'd say is that cognition is that set of processes that come between environmental stimuli or inputs to the brain and behavioural outputs or responses to the world. And it's not one thing, as you pointed out. It's a set of processes which include, for example, perception, attention, which is kind of how you represent the world, and then operating on those representations. For example, planning, decision-making, and also storing the representations in memory and getting them back again.
0: How has our knowledge of cognition changed over the past couple of decades?
2: Cognition's traditionally been the province of psychologists who've evolved very sensitive and sophisticated ways of measuring it. I guess the last couple of uh, decades, there's been a huge interest in how cognition is mediated by the brain particularly the human brain, with the advent of neuroimaging techniques such as functional magnetic resonance imaging and positron emission tomography, but also in terms of sophisticated animal paradigms which enable us to explore human-like cognitive processes such as memory and planning.
0: And what's the focus here on psychopharmacology? Because, after all, this is the neuropsychopharmacology reviews issue.
2: Yeah, well, obviously, psychopharmacology addresses the neurochemical Uh, modulation of cognitive function. The brain is a set of neural networks which work in terms of the neurochemicals that are released at the synapses. And these neurochemicals are called neurotransmitters or chemical messengers. And drugs uh, affect the function of these neurotransmitters. For example, blocking their receptors or acting as agonists at their receptors
0: And what particular trends within this area then of psychopharmacology and its effects on cognition did you want to focus on in this volume?
2: I guess the main themes are conceptual but also clinical in terms of translation uh, to real psychiatric disorders such as schizophrenia and depression.
0: Now let's talk about uh, some of the reviews in the issue in a little bit more detail. Now first off, you started the package of articles with a review on Timing.
2: Yeah, so I put together this issue almost like a long-playing album, which seamlessly goes from beginning to end. And I began with timing simply because I think it's so fundamental to understanding how the brain works. Obviously, the philosophers recognise that. They're also interested in spatial cognition, and space is another important dimension, but we know a lot about that. We know a lot less about timing and how it's modulated by neurochemical and neural systems in the brain. And the two contributors, Jenny Cole and Warren Meck, have really taken a very original stance and for the first time have brought together some very basic animal-related work, Warren Meck's, with the very sophisticated neuroimaging and electrophysiological work of Jenny Call to produce a real synthesis of how different types of temporal timing mechanism are represented in the brain which neural systems they engage and how they're modulated by these neurotransmitter systems.
0: So does there seem to be more than one way in which the brain represents time?
2: I'm sure that's true. The circadian pacemakers, of course, in the hypothalamus, which uh, get us uh, working on well-known circadian rhythms, but timing is, of course, also very much in the short-term range, milliseconds, and there are completely different mechanisms associated with that. Some of these I think, derive or emerge from the way that movement is coordinated in the brain. And so, intriguingly, the basal ganglia, which we know to be involved in Parkinson's disease, and also the cerebellum, have really important roles it transpires in timing. But these have to be coordinated and regulated by top-down systems, probably from the cerebral cortex.
0: Are there pharmacological manipulations of uh, the way in which we perceive time?
2: Yeah, so... One of the theories that Warren Beck, for example, has, has been pursuing is that drugs such as amphetamine, which affect dopamine, actually make the clock go faster. Um, there's also other evidence that drugs affecting cholinergic mechanisms affect uh, the running of the clock. So this is you know, a rather different way of looking at things, that you affect the clock and, as a consequence of that, behaviour and cognition are affected, rather than the other way round. Remember, many people perceive time in terms of their own behaviour hence those famous patients, Oliver Sacks, with very severe Parkinson's disease who were frozen in time as well as in behaviour.
0: Oh, well, and we're all aware that you know, certain days where boring stuff happens, time goes really slowly.
2: Absolutely, and also when you get older, time goes very quickly, you may have noticed.
0: <laughs> now, moving on, uh, you've got several themes that are related to different neurotransmitters. Uh, one of them is, is to do with the effects of dopamine on mm. cognitive processes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So let me just talk in general about the transmitters and then focus on dopamine. So one of the fascinating discoveries in neurobiology, really from about the 50s on, is that this notion we have of arousal, you know, this general process which makes us active and keeps us awake, as distinct from sleeping and hibernation, if you like, um, is mediated by a brain stem system, which turns out to be very highly differentiated in neurochemical terms. So there are many arousal systems. They're each different colours, if you like. There's, you know, noradrenaline from the locus coeruleus, acetylcholine from the tegmentum and the basal forebrain, serotonin from the raphae nuclei, and of course dopamine from the midbrain. And one of my own personal research interests has been to try and tease apart what these different systems do for behaviour and cognition. Uh, so, for example, noradrenaline, and acetylcholine are clearly involved in keeping the cortex up to speed, literally and, you know, enhancing signal-to-noise ratios. Dopamine seems to have very different functions, projects obviously to the, the basal ganglia and the cortex, very much involved in reward systems and in what we call preparation for action, readiness, and contributes to reinforcement learning. And this is represented in this volume all over the place. But... In particular, what we've done is to take two theoretical positions by Peter Dayan, uh, on the one hand from UCL and his colleague, and also Rajan Kors from the Netherlands, coming from very different perspectives. Uh, one of them very neurocomputational, modelling-oriented, uh, working on the idea that dopamine indeed modulates these learning systems. The other coming from the notion that dopamine has general activational roles. Following that, going more to the human domain, we have two very exciting chapters, one by Robert Rogers, who explicitly discusses how one studies the roles of dopamine and serotonin in human decision-making, complemented by a chapter by Michael Frank and colleagues where he looks at the, the neurogenetics of this, how genetic polymorphisms affecting the dopamine system are linked to cognition. And it all comes out rather beautifully, as you'll see in his chapter.
0: Now, as you mentioned, these transmitter systems, they don't all operate in isolation. Uh, One of the others you mentioned was the cholinergic system, acetylcholine, uh, which I believe some of your own work is centred on.
2: Yes, so uh, interestingly, in the uh, 80s and 90s, there was very much an idea that the acetylcholine system was particularly important in Alzheimer's disease. And as you know, the drugs we have now for treating Alzheimer's disease generally work by boosting acetylcholine, not that successfully. But that's what we predicted back then on the basis of animal models. What we demonstrated is that animals with um, damage to their basal forebrain were bad at attending to things. These rats simply didn't pick up visual targets associated with food. Now, in the new volume, Martin Sartre and his colleagues at Michigan have extended this work beautifully by actually recording cholinergic transients in the frontal cortex associated with this target detection. And not only that, he's gone on to study the roles of specific receptors, which are currently of great interest in the pharmaceutical industry, associated with the nicotine receptor. In
0: order to hear a bit more about that,
2: yes
3: Conventionally, or traditionally I should say, we attributed fairly undifferentiated functions to the cholinergic system, such as increasing arousal. And in the mid-90s, evidence started to to indicate that this system is mediating fairly specific components uh, required for attentional performance. And uh, these days, based on evidence from recent years, we know that the system actually uh, mediates very specific uh, components of attention depending on the area, the target area you're looking at.
0: In terms of what goes wrong with this system, what disorders might result when something is abnormal in cholinergic transmission?
3: Yes, I mean, we, the system came into focus in, in, the, in the early 1980s, when it was reported for the first time that these neurons degenerate fairly early in Alzheimer's disease. And I think it's fair to say that uh, the contemporary literature continues to support the view that the severity of the cognitive decline is at least to a degree uh, based on the loss of these cholinergic uh, neurons the status of the system in in other disorders that are uh, dominated by by cognitive symptoms such as schizophrenia or ADHD is less well understood, at least at the level of the evidence from human brains. And this is because it's very likely that uh, in these disorders, uh, it is not the case that the system would degenerate or would undergo other dramatic structural changes, but uh, rather that the system in those disorders is dysregulated in a highly dynamic fashion.
0: Moving from disorders to possible therapies based on acetylcholine and cholinergic transmission, do we do we know enough yet to be able to develop therapies for some of these disorders that we know that it's implicated in?
3: Yes, I, and and I think just the very recent evidence has has uh, given us a quite a promising basis to number one understand better why traditional uh, attempts to treat these symptoms via cholinergic systems have really not been very convincing. And at the same time, uh, those new insights have given us um, uh, very interesting ideas, uh, what receptors would be would be most promising. And our own focus and the focus of many others in recent years have been on a subtype of the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, because that receptor imports one of these components of cholinergic neurotransmission into prefrontal cortical circuitry and optimizes the functions of that circuitry and there have been already a couple of uh, smaller uh, clinical trials in adhd in age-related memory impairments and other disorders that have produced very very promising results now having said this there are massive questions that have to be explored but at least now i feel that we have finally a rational approach to try better and more sophisticated approaches to cholinergic uh, pharmacotherapy.
0: Now, we've done cholinergic transmission, we've We've covered dopamine. How about glutamate? Glutamate. That's also part of the issue.
2: This is the fast signaling transmitter system, which, of course, is so much implicated in the prime cognitive functions of learning and memory. Well, in this particular volume, we've got two tremendous chapters which also have a clinical application theme. Uh, First of all, a chapter with uh, uh, Catherine Myers and uh, Michael Davis and William Carlison has examined this fascinating new evidence that glutamate is involved in extinction. Extinction learning is a very special kind of learning. It's unlearning, if you like. But it turns out that unlearning isn't quite what you think it is. Unlearning occurs when you no longer get rewarded for doing something, so your behaviour dwindles away. What actually happens then, though, is that the behaviour is suppressed by a neural system.
4: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers.
5: Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: The memory is still there. It's just suppressed. And it turns out that glutamate's importantly involved in this process, which has enormous implications in terms of the treatment of anxiety, for example.
0: And possibly post-traumatic stress disorder and other
2: Indeed. Conditions. All of these disorders where you want to get rid of things... And indeed, Michael Davis's group have shown that patients with anxiety, vertigo, can show enormous improvements in a simulation of a vertigo task in the lab with d which lasts out into their everyday environment for at least three months as a consequence of combining the old exposure therapy, the old cognitive and behavioral strategy for dealing with this disorder, with the drug. So this is one of the futures of psychopharmacology, the appropriate combination of drug treatment with the appropriate psychological treatment. Now, the second really complementary article in this issue by Phil Corlett and the team at Yale and also Cambridge, Paul Fletcher, um, studied the model, the ketamine model of schizophrenia. Now, ketamine is a rather non-specific NMDA receptor antagonist, which for many years has been known to produce a, quote, model psychosis in humans. In other words, delusions and so forth. And this group have explored the underpinning psychological and neural processes involved in these effects of ketamine. So typically what they've done is study effects of ketamine on learning. And they find, intriguingly, that ketamine distorts learning processes in such a way that uh, aberrant salience may be attributed to conditioned stimuli which Things of course become more
0: important than they would otherwise be.
2: Seemingly more important for reasons which aren't very well understood to the person. And so they construct an elaborate delusion to account for this. And this could be a very model of what goes on in schizophrenia.
0: In order to learn a little bit more about the effects of ketamine on cognition, I've actually spoken very briefly to Phil Corlett, so here's what he had to say.
1: So ketamine was initially developed as an anaesthetic drug, but when people came out of the anaesthesia they reported experiences that were very, very similar to the sorts of things that people uh, report when they're in the early stages of uh, a serious mental illness called schizophrenia. So they would feel like there were odd things happening between themselves and people in the room. They would hear things and perceive things that really weren't actually there. And they would respond to very simple uh, events in the world as though they had much more significance than they really ought to. And so... Over the past sort of 20 years, 30 years or so, um, we thought that we could almost explore those effects in healthy volunteers um, by administering them a dose of this drug.
0: And what would be an example of the type of experiment you might do?
1: The initial experiments involved just administering a subject, a fairly high, what we call psychotomimetic dose of the drug, and exploring the effects on people's experiences and, and how they felt about things in their world. But the the experiments I've been very interested in doing is is giving subjects a very low dose of the drug, inviting them to come into the fMRI scanner and complete a series of cognitive tasks that we think are interesting with respect to the symptoms that we think they might experience when they're on a higher dose of the drug. Having them complete those tasks, bringing them out of the scanner, and turning the dose up to one that's really productive of the sorts of symptoms that we think are really important. We don't want people experiencing sort of psychotic-like experiences when they're in the scanner. We want them to be able to complete the tasks that we're interested in whilst they're on the drug.
0: And what has this approach been able to tell you that other approaches to studying schizophrenia and psychosis uh, haven't been able to reveal?
1: Um, We think that we're we're modelling a phase of the disease that one normally wouldn't have access to. So we think with a low dose of ketamine, we might be able to explore... um, the psychological states and and brain responses that might be a sort of antecedent of those more serious psychotic illnesses. The other thing I think we're capturing with these sorts of studies is the idea that everybody has a propensity towards experiencing these sorts of things. So given the right perturbation, given a ketamine infusion, uh, even people who sort of consider themselves beyond this sort of experience might well have a very profound set of experiences that are very similar to what might happen in the very early phases of, uh, of schizophrenia.
0: Now, I have to ask, Phil, finally, um, out of curiosity or perhaps a need to empathise with your subjects, have you ever self-administered ketamine?
1: Sadly not, no. I've volunteered for a different administration of a psychotomimetic drug, so I have been in a study where I've been given a high dose of delta-9-THC, the active ingredient in smoked cannabis, I haven't had ketamine, but I have had something very similar, and uh, that something very similar had a very profound effect on me. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I did it, but it was also quite a frightening and troubling experience. So I was glad that I could put myself into the, uh, into the shoes of, of of the subjects that we bring into our ketamine studies.
0: Phil, call it there. Uh, back to you, Trevor Robbins. And I, okay. I think we should probably talk a little bit. We, we've dealt with transmitters, I think, quite satisfactorily. Oh, um, thank you very much, Terry. <laughs> We've, um, we've we've talked a little bit about transmitter systems. Yes. How about uh, some of the reviews focused on specific disorders?
2: Oh yes, indeed. Well, I I decided to focus in this issue a lot on depression. I decided to go for two rather complementary chapters. One by Diego Pizzagalli at Harvard, who's got a very interesting meta-analysis in his chapter of how uh, using brain imaging rostral anterior cingulate activity appears to be a biomarker for efficacy of treatment in depression in various ways. And he's put together a really, I think, compelling case for this in his review of the literature in his article, and also asks the question, well, how is this hyperactivity in some sense functionally protective of the brain against depression? And he looks at several intriguing theories along, along these lines
0: would these biomarkers potentially be useful for early diagnosis of certain conditions?
2: Absolutely. Biomarkers is the language of everything these days. I mean, many people think of biomarkers in terms of, say, you know, biochemical biomarker of plaque formation in the Alzheimer brain or something like that. But because biomarkers can be electrical signatures, brain imaging signatures, structural brain change signatures, even behavioural or cognitive signatures. And the, this example of increased rostral anterior cingulate activity in the Pizzagali review is is obviously a potential biomarker in, in depression.
0: Another review looks at the interface between cognition and mood. Tell us a bit about that. Uh,
2: the other chapter is by Re- Rebecca Elliott and the, the team at Manchester. And Re- Rebecca is one of these um, you know, brilliant people who've really looked at the interface between affect and cognition. And I have to say, she. She came out of a a Barbara Sir Harkin's lab here in Cambridge um, working on how depressed individuals respond to negative feedback originally. And Rebecca, while she was a graduate student, showed that if you give them a cognitive task, they may start performing the task perfectly well, but as time goes on, eventually they make a mistake. Everyone makes a mistake. And their performance then gets worse and worse and worse. And this was called the catastrophic response to failure and of course normal subjects just pull up their socks and do better after they made a mistake but depressed subjects don't and there's been some very interesting work done uh, often in collaboration with Rebecca on the neural substrates of this which may appear to involve structures like the amygdala and the frontal cortex acting together frontal cortex regulating amygdala activity in various ways. And Rebecca really explores these very basic findings by, by this group and also others throughout the world um, and has shown how this approach to understanding depression, the interface between cognition and affect, really does work in understanding what's going wrong in the depressed brain.
0: One of the final reviews in the issue looks at this really intriguing effect, the placebo effect, which
2: is everywhere. Yeah, in, well indeed. Uh, the placebo effect, remember, is more than one thing. are several types of placebo effect. They come out very strongly in studies on pain for example, and also, intriguingly, Parkinson's disease. Probably very different mechanisms. Almost certainly cognitive and behavioral uh, in nature, because essentially what one's talking about here is a manipulation of expectancy. We know a lot about expectancies and how they're represented in the brain, and and clearly expectancy is a very important factor that one has to take into account when comparing a drug, a new drug, which is, we have great optimism for, uh, against some control procedure. So the the chapter by Benedetti and his colleagues is really a tremendous review of the huge advances we've had in this area, um, understanding the neural systems and the neurochemical modulation.
0: Now, just before we, we wrap up, um, we haven't really touched on the kinds of techniques that people are using to get at some of these issues. We've talked about the, the issues they're mm. reaching for and studying. Um, what is what has been the influence of techniques over the last, say, decade? I mean, there's so well, many now available. Well, it's crucial. I mean, you
2: know, g- going from some of the animal work, and we haven't talked very much about some of the um, you know animal models of cognitive functions, but clearly they've involved not only just the administration of drugs, but also the production of transgenic animals, transgenic mice with specific uh, neurotransmitter uh, deficits, if you like. Uh, so that's very important. I mentioned uh, Martin Sartre's work with advanced voltammetry methods for measuring, for example, cholinergic transients in the frontal cortex. These are tremendous developments. And also, obviously, all of the imaging, um, not only fMRI, which we've discussed, but also PET, you know, labelling of receptors in the brain. But also, we, of course, we have, we have to look to the future. One aspect of the future may be to look at more sophisticated human electrophysiological methods. Obviously, One has electrophysiology in animal models in terms of single units and channels and and so forth. But um, what we're interested in here is measuring quite discrete potentials associated with cognitive events, for example, from the scalp. What they're going to bias is improved resolution of time in terms of cognitive processing. What they're also going to bias in conjunction with brain imaging using a magnet is this temporal resolution combined with better spatial resolution from the magnet. So this is crucial in psychopharmacology, where many of the drugs um, have cardiovascular effects or vascular effects in the brain and produce apparent changes, for example, in the bold response, simply because of that, rather than because of cognitive processing produced by neuronal activations. So the advantage of harnessing, Electrophysiological with neuroimaging methods in humans, in response to a drug, we'd be able to tie down when that drug is working, where it's working, and also that it's working on neuronal populations rather than simply indirectly as a consequence of vascular effects.
0: So, buying us time, better temporal resolution as well as spatial. We're almost back to the beginning where we're talking about timing. Absolutely, and
2: so that's why we put that uh, chapter in at the beginning because, in fact, the application of these methods has been largely to look at processes like attention and preparation for motor output, which um, require very crucial timing mechanisms.
0: Now, I know that scientists hate to speculate too much, uh, Trevor, but I'm going to ask you to do just that. What do you think the the field of cognition has in store for us in the next 10 years?
2: Well, we're going to have really um, precise computational models of how neural systems may work. I think one of the problems we have currently with computational models by you know, really brilliant people like Peter Diane who's contributing to this issue, and Nathaniel Dorr, is that um, they do brilliantly with a certain amount of information, but one feels that with more information they could become really precise and uh, really make fantastic predictions, both in terms of behaviour and cognition, but also in terms of neural events. And so that's going to be crucial in guiding new theory and hypotheses about how cognitive functions are organised, And once we have that theory, of course, we can apply this vast range of new techniques that we've talked about to get the most out of them. So I think that's definitely a way for the future.
0: Great stuff. Well, I, for one, will be looking forward to it. Trevor Robbins, thank you very much. Thank you. Even
5: when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands.